Cove Productions presents the Solo in South Philly podcast with your host and local legal whiz, Wit Knowledge, Mark Kachi. What is good, everyone? Welcome to the Solo in South Philly podcast. Our season one is called Law School Reunion. And what we're going to do is go back, way back, back into time. Each episode, I'll be reuniting with a different law school colleague. We will discuss what led them to law school, their law school experience, and what they do now. My first guest is Shane Scott. Shane R. Scott is a civil litigation attorney and partner with Chasen, Lamparello, Mallon, and Capuzzo, PC. My apologies if I mispronounce any of those names. She represents various clients with a concentration in civil litigation, focusing on labor and employment law. She is active in the New Jersey State Bar Association, is a member of the Diversity Committee, and is a member of the Executive Committee of the State Bar Labor and Employment Section. Shane is also an active member of the Garden State Bar Association, serving on its board of directors, and is also a co-chair of the GSBA Labor and Employment Steering Committee. Shane is GSBA's 2021 Professional Lawyer of the Year recipient, and the 2022 GSBA Raymond A. Brown Award recipient. Shane conducts anti-harassment and discrimination trainings for public entities and presents seminars and writes about the impact of unconscious bias in the workplace. Shane is a certified life coach and founder of the spiritualitigator.com, where she coaches women lawyers to help them make partner without burning out. Shane also presents seminars and writes about the importance of mindfulness and self-care for attorneys. Specifically, Shane's article, Mindfulness, A Simpler Way to Alleviate Attorney Stress, was published in the July and August 2017 issue of the American Bar Association, GPSOLO Magazine, a national publication. And Shane's article, The ABCs of Emotional Health, was published in the July 2019 issue of the New Jersey Lawyer magazine. Shane's article, Shane Says Relax, Take Time for Yourself, was published in the April 2021 issue of New Jersey Super Lawyers magazine. Okay, so a little bit about our guest, Shane Scott. I went to law school with Shane, and we both took part in one of life's greatest hacks. We studied abroad in Australia and New Zealand together. Down under, we had a very tight-knit group, and we all spent a lot of time together, both inside and outside of class. We took side trips, put a few shrimp on the barbie, some tinnies in the esky, that sort of thing. Uh, Talking about law school stuff, plus sports, music, philosophy, you know, anything to avoid studying. And it's been a decade since I've graduated, and I've been following her journey along along the way. She's, She's definitely done some really big things. So I thought it would be great for her to share her journey with some others. Uh, So let's welcome Shane Scott to the program. Thank you for having me. So yeah, I I love how you started with the life's greatest hack. For anybody that's listening who's considering doing study abroad in law school, I say go ahead and do it. I know that there's a lot of chatter about student loans and all of this, but I'm like, you know what? I couldn't have done it without student loans. I have no regrets. And think about when you can have another time in your life in which you could spend four months abroad. Like when do you, when are you going to have that time again until you retire? 
So no, we really had a fantastic group. We were pretty close. We, and we stayed in touch after that. So I've been out to Philly to visit you and your wife and it's been a, a, a really good journey for both of us. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. So let's talk about law school, right? Uh, everyone goes to law school or a lot of, there's a lot of different reasons for going to law school. What led you to law school? So I always knew I wanted to be a lawyer. I was actually voted most likely to be a lawyer in eighth grade. Um, so I was fascinated with lawyer shows and I really liked the analytical and problem solving side of being a lawyer. So I knew I wanted to be in a courtroom and I either wanted to be a criminal lawyer or a labor labor and employment litigator, just because my parents were both kind of in that world. My mom was a teacher for 45 years and my dad was a personnel director for Ann Arbor. So I, I knew litigation was the direction for me, whether it was in civil or criminal. So that's kind of what led me there. Okay. And uh, you went to Michigan State, right? Yeah. Uh, as many people know, I'm sure. So when you went to college, so if you always wanted to be a lawyer, when you went to college, did you pick a major with, with that in mind? Or did you think, well, I can study anything and, and still go to law school? That's really interesting you asked that. So when I first started at Michigan State, I actually was a major in advertising. That was a really bad choice. Um, and it was immediate to me that that was the wrong major. So I switched over to political science pre-law almost immediately after a five-credit advertisement course. That was not what I expected. Um, so yeah, marketing wasn't my gift in life. I kind of wanted to just dip my feet into something and I dipped myself right out of there and went to law school or went towards the law school path. And that was a much better path for me in college. Yeah. You know, it's funny. <clears throat> the thing I always think it's a major that always people tend to joke about, which is philosophy, right? Because like they say, what are you going to be a professional philosopher? But I noticed that a lot of people that majored in philosophy did really well on their LSATs because they were primed for the logic games, for the analogies, for all of that stuff. And I feel like if I could do it all over again, maybe maybe it'd be a good idea to do that, read some really intense stuff, um, if I knew 100% that I was going to law school. Yeah, I, and I could see that. Um, and the philosophy class that I did take, I remember, was really interesting. But if we're still talking about scams, I think the LSAT is a whole scam too, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, they're, they're so, I mean, we could have a whole program on that. So, um, all right. So what led you to the Thomas M. Cooley Law School? So, um, and this is not a knock on Cooley and it's not a knock on anybody that went to Cooley, right? But um, one of the things that was kind of in the news around the time that we were in school and after we graduated into a not so great market was that Cooley was considered a lower tier school. It wasn't University of Michigan. It wasn't, you know, these other like high tier schools, but I'm so grateful for Cooley and for what it is because they take in a large amount of students and you either sink or swim. You really are given this opportunity to either make it work or be a part of the large amount of attrition. So for me, I personally just had too much fun at Michigan State. I, I, I look back and my grades weren't horrible, but they weren't what they needed to be to go to University of Michigan or go to Michigan State Law School or, you know, some of the other big, you know, big schools. But and, and the LSAT score, I mean, I'll, I'll take that to the grave is like a really terrible score. I'm not, I'm not going to, you're not going to question me on the Supreme Court and get a good answer. Um, so, but I just, 
I remember just applying there and being like, this is it. This is, this is where I'm going to go and I'm going to make it work. And I'm so glad that I did that because Cooley was a lot of fun. You know, it's like, think about just in general, how you go through high school and college and you have all these prerequisites and requirements and classes that you're never going to use that information again. I will never in my life be in a situation where I can't access a calculator or I'll have to like memorize things. Right. But so like law school was finally the situation where I was learning everything I wanted to learn. And there wasn't a class that I didn't want to take because it was all law related. So it doesn't really matter what container that you're in, whether it's a Cooley, whether it's a, you know, Columbia or whatever it is, you're still going to be learning the theory of law. But I felt like Cooley, because of the large amount of people, people of different backgrounds, people, uh, like such a large volume of people, there was less of this competition that I hear about from other law schools. It was just like, we're all here and we're all here to learn. So that's kind of what took me there. And I started at the Lansing campus, but then I transferred to the Grand Rapids campus, which I guess my understanding is it doesn't exist anymore, but we had a really good number of students at that time. Um, that was 2000, end of 2008. And I transferred there because I started clerking for a large law firm and I thought I was going to end up working there back then, and it didn't really work out that way. But you know, I, I ended up graduating from the from the Grand Rapids campus, where I had a really really good time. Yeah, yeah. A couple of things I'd like to to add to what you're saying, which I think are in line. <clears throat> Number one, the line that stuck with me. I had a, I had a professor once pre-trial. I think he made a really good line. He said, "Don't don't knock Cooley." He said, "Because one of two things: either you choose Co- Cooley, or Cooley choose you." Right. Because we had some kids that went there for free. They did well on their LSATs and they offered very generous um, scholarship opportunities, maybe cheaper to live in Lansing than it is, say, somewhere else. Um, or like for some people, it was the only opportunity. And then they ended up taking it, transferring out to somewhere better or staying there and or better ranked, I should say, um, or uh, staying there and, and making the most of it. Um what, what do you think of this analogy? So did you ever watch the uh, documentary Last Chance You? No. On Netflix? Mm-mm. No, it's really good. I really recommended it. My wife actually was like obsessed with it. So, and I think they've done variations and spinoffs. And I think they had to move away to different campuses to, to get more material for future seasons. But um, there was these junior colleges, like in the middle of nowhere, I think like Mississippi or something like that. And um they would have these powerhouse community college programs and they would, it was just a collection of um, people that, you know, messed up in at, a, at another school, people that didn't have the grades to, to go division one, people that got kicked out of schools. And it was just like, <clears throat> like they were living on campus, they had dorms, they had like this, this teacher there that was making sure that they go to class and all this other stuff, but really gritty, really tough and the people that you know did well ended up going to division one schools there's a large number of nfl alumni and i just kind of felt like i i would category categorize in in many ways our law school that way like it was like you get in where you put you get in what you put out or you know what i mean uh you get out what you put in right so uh people that came there and worked hard and, and really were focused did big things. And then some people who just didn't have it or it wasn't for them, they didn't, they didn't make it. So um, what kind of activities did you participate in at Cooley? Yeah. So um, I was really into moot court. That's really like one of my 
the biggest things that I wanted to be involved in because I always wanted to do appellate advocacy. So I was involved in the first year moot court competition and I look back and I got third best advocate in my first year competition. It's, you know, one of those little things that you like a trophy in your brain. Um, <laughs> and then, <laughs> you know, I took the moot court class and then I was on the national team and we went down to San Diego. Um, so that was probably one of my biggest involvements. And then, you know, it was in the trial groups and the, you know, the litigations uh, section and just, you know, the study abroad was probably the best decision that I made during law school without, without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. The, how did, how did moot court prepare you for practice? You know, it's so interesting. So I have actually argued in the appellate division in New Jersey five times, and I recently argued in the New Jersey Supreme Court. So all of that training, I would say, really prepared me, not just in the um, like actual argument, but just the how you prepare yourself, how you prepare the brief, how you have your notes together. And I can't tell you how many times I would see people with like full binders and all their stuff like carrying it up to the front you see the judges faces and they're like oh god you know this is going to be a while and so when I come up with my little trifold that professor Brett's taught me how to use back in you know Lansing it's like it's almost like there's this relief they're like oh, well she's not going to talk that much there's only so much that can fit in those folders so it's all those little parts of like preparation the mindset that you need to have and just what to bring up with you all those things combined like really really prepared me for appellate advocacy over the last 10 years of litigating you mentioned a name i think it's going to come up a few times during the course of this series uh professor brett uh and anything to share about him I, I did not have the pleasure of having him but um i know he was a fan favorite um, and, you know, he would often get asked to speak at graduation as voted by the students. Yeah, he was really uh, I had him for criminal procedure and, and he was over the moot court national competition. And he was always just a really great advocate for all of us students. Um, and he would always encourage us. And it was just really fun to like know that he had argued in the United States Supreme Court and he had his like old picture from that. And yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen him in years and years and years, but um, he was, he was a great influence throughout law school. Definitely. Yeah. I remember, I remember he had two claims of fame. He had argued in front of the United States Supreme court and he played, um, I think he played bass at the green door, which was uh, <laughs> on Thursday nights, his students would go out to see his blues band. Yes. His band was very good. <laughs> Um, okay. So law school, um, well, I guess one part, one last question on it, you know, I think you mentioned you liked it. Uh, a lot of people hate it, uh, or they're stressed out. I, I personally think they're either in the wrong place or maybe they're missing the point. Um, but all in all, you, you say school itself was, was a fun, positive experience. Yeah. I mean, of course there's challenges and of course there's frustrations when, you know, we all get a grade. We're like, what is this grade? I thought I knew everything, but for the most part, my grades were pretty good in law school. It was, I guess it felt like the first time where it was like the effort, the grades matched the effort. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I felt really good about how everything came out. Um, so it was a, it was a pretty, pretty good experience. It was like when it came to like studying for the bar exam, that's when things started to change and shift as far as like the, the stress. So, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, one one I think big take home that I thought was different uh, between undergrad and law school was in undergrad there was some some fluff with your grade. Maybe you turn in a paper, maybe you get extra credit, maybe these sorts of things. With law school, it was like no matter how intense and how focused you were, and you you showed up to every class, you were engaged, you read every case, you briefed every case. It all comes down to that whistle blowing for the final and like. What can you do on that day? And that alone is a lot of pressure, but um, I feel is I feel is you know invaluable experience for for the what the future holds for you. Yeah, and I think, and I think I said a little bit earlier, like we'll never again have to memorize things again. And I I don't think people recognize that at Cooley. I think I only had one open note test. That was a uh, secure transactions. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that was the only one, everything we had to fully memorize everything. And that kind of prepares you for the bar exam. Cause it's the same type of thing, but after that you're done, you don't ever have to memorize anything again, but it just really sets you up for taking a large amount of information and like understanding it and applying it. So I was, I was really not weird, but I, I used to get, really big paper from office depot and just write my entire outline. And I would fill my apartment walls with the entire outline before the exams. Um, and that was my way of teaching my brain. Like it's not too much. It's just everything that's on the wall. If you can memorize everything that's on the wall, you're going to get an A or you're going to pass the exam or, you know, whatever it was. So some people thought it was kind of weird, but then you know, some people started actually doing it also because they were like, well, maybe there's something to this. So it was difficult, but it definitely did prepare you to, you know, go on to take the bar exam. Absolutely. Yeah, no, uh, you actually took the next, I was going to bring that up when I was going to ask you about the bar exam prep, because I I remember you posted videos of, or not video, picture of it. It's like, you might've said something like studying the only way I know how, and it was like this massive uh, butcher paper, whatever you want to call it, um, with everything written neatly into it. Um, so uh, do you think you're a visual learner or what, what about that method do you find effective? I think what happens is when you get it out of your head and onto paper, it just makes it less stressful because usually what, and as we practice, we do the same thing where we're like, it's just too much to do. I don't know where to start, but when you put it all in front of you, and the only way you could put all that in front of you is just put it on that big paper and be like, this is it. This is everything that I need to, you know, get a law license. Everything on this wall is everything I need. There's nothing outside of these walls that I need. So it was like really mentally preparing. And then as I was going through like my note cards and I'm like, okay, it's, it's on this wall. So it's like, when I sat down to actually take the bar exam, I was able to visualize, oh wait, that's on that wall and that's in purple. And I'm like remembering it, or it's on that wall, it's in blue. And that's where I wrote, you know, this, you know, different things about contracts or about, you know, the sales. And as you know, the Michigan bar exam was very Michigan specific. So it required you to not just know the common law, but to know like really small intricacies about no fault insurance that we had never (laughs) really learned before. Um, And family law stuff that, you know, I'm never going to practice, but we had to know all the factors. So it was really helpful to just visualize it. Yeah. um, I I feel like, um, remember we took that intro to law class that was zero credits and you know, it, some people it helped, other people they felt it was additional work. Um, I, I wish they would talk more about memorization and different methods. Um, 
you know, maybe you talk about your methods, that sort of thing. I read this book during COVID um, called uh, Moonwalking with Einstein. Have you ever heard of it? No. I highly, I highly recommend it. So it's, um, it's this guy, he's a journalist, and he, he seeks to understand these people that per, uh, are in memorization contests, right? Um, so they can memorize like entire decks of cards or wh- whatever, right? And so he, he goes to study them and then he participates in them and then he eventually, you know, he actually eventually wins one or whatever. But it's crazy because like there's all these different tricks that that you can utilize because of the way our, our mind works. Um, and, and some of it, you know, we use in law school, like the mnemonics are huge, right? Um, ocean, for I remember, was uh, for adverse possession and things like that. And uh, some, some of the good Barbary professors, I think, uh, did a good job with that. Or they have little songs. I remember that it was a property professor. Um, it takes two. She would sing the Stevie Wonder song. It takes two. Um, and now I'm, I'm, I'm kind of contradicting myself. It takes two, baby. It was uh, it was it was something that involved two parties. But that was her way to to memorize it. So, um yeah, I, I wish they would have would have done that. Um, all right, so let's talk bar prep then. So, um, and and we'll, we'll get into this. You you end up taking two bars, right? Yeah. Um, but let's let's talk about Michigan bar prep. Where did you um, where did you go to study for it? What courses did you enroll in? That sort of thing. Yeah. So for Michigan bar exam, I took Barbary, and I also. At the time, and I'm not sure if they still do this because we're, what, 10, 11 years removed, but there was a specific bar prep course that they offered, which went over Michigan law, which was insanely invaluable. So if it is offered still, that's one thing to do. And there was a book that they had that went over old bar exam essay questions um, that was absolutely fantastic. So those two things, I think Barbary was incredible. And the funny thing about Barbary is... You know, we it's not to say that law school is not important, but things don't really click until you're kind of going through bar prep. And so you're watching the videos and you're like, oh, that's what an offer is. You know, it's it's like really <laughs> simple, simple things that and Barbie just breaks them down so much more, you know, like very objectively. Whereas we've gone through theory, we've gone through all these cases, and it's just like they're not gonna ask you about cases on the bar exam, they're gonna ask you a question in this way. Um, so I took the Michigan bar exam in February of 2011. Um, and <laughs> I look back uh, between the two bars, cause I ended up taking New Jersey, which I'll tell you about, but, um, I just like Michigan was such a hard exam because there it's a bunch of different topics that, c- that it could be testing, but you're still going to have 15 questions and it's timed. And at the time that you couldn't type, so you're like writing and I'm worried about my awful handwriting, like, oh, I'm going to lose points because of this. And then I finished early both sessions. And I was like, oh, I'm totally failing because I'm finishing early. I must be missing something. Um, and so I, and then the last day of the Michigan bar exam, I get a voicemail from the law clerk at the judge in Jersey, where I ended up going to work, I got a got a voicemail saying, please send your transcripts. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm going to fail Michigan. And now I got to take Michigan and New Jersey together. Wow. <laughs> so it was, it was, it was a very stressful time. Um, but it worked out. I mean, I, I passed Michigan 
Um, and then I went on to take Jersey, which wasn't as difficult, but, you know, taking another bar exam is still terrible, you know, but, and going to another state where I, I didn't really know a lot of people and, and kind of going out there. But for the New Jersey bar, I didn't take Barbary again because I knew it was hundred percent common law. So I ended up taking Adaptabar, which was a little bit cheaper. Um, and again, I don't know if these are great courses anymore because that was 11 years ago, which is crazy. Like how time flies. Right. Yeah. So like the New Jersey bar, I, I didn't take it. My wife, my wife did both. And what she told me um, was that it was, it, it was like some of our tort exams at Cooley, right? Like it was this huge outline dump and you had to be prepared to just rapidly write, get as much onto that page as possible. Um, and often I've heard people wouldn't pass because they, they weren't kind of used to writing like that, like, you know, just getting it all in there. And, um, you know, so I, I don't, again, it's been a decade, maybe things have changed, but was it that like that for you? Yeah. And it was, and that kind of goes back to why Cooley prepared us because we were outlined dumping and memorizing things for the whole three years we were there. So we kind of knew how to do that, how to drop as many things as possible. And we, you know, we knew what happened when you did it, you know, when you went back and you're like, well, what did I miss? You know, and when you would do practice, practice exams, which, you know, it's another thing. I'm pretty sure all law schools do this, but, you know, Cooley would allow you to have like past exam answers and to kind of practice. Um, and so you would see, okay, this is what they're looking for. So you kind of knew what the bar examiners were looking for, for that same reason. Yeah. Correct me if I'm wrong. Um, did someone pass out literally during your exam? The New Jersey, was that you? It was not me passing no, no, out. No, no, no. Was, was that someone <laughs> yes, in that your did room? happen. Um, and it happened far away from me because we were in a huge, huge, huge room um, at the Meadowlands. So I just remember hearing commotion. But, you know, you're so terrified during the barks. You're like in a fog. So it's like you have earplugs in and you see commotion, but you're not really... Like you're like, well, I can't look around because they're gonna think I'm cheating. So whatever happened over there, I'm sure they'll right. be fine. Like there was never like, you know, plus, like plus the, ambulance. There was, there was no duty to rescue, right? And if you did rescue, <laughs> no duty to rescue, no. <laughs> then you would be held to those standards, right? Correct. Um, if I remember correctly, I think I might be getting my stories mixed up because I, I remember hearing a story of someone going into labor and then finishing. that was in Illinois. Illinois, yeah, and then. Oh, maybe it was that one. Cause I think that girl passed, she passed the bar exam. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Crazy, crazy times. Um, so yeah, think about this. I, I kind of want to touch on, and I, I think it's, it's good advice that like when people sit for different bars, cause you talked about Michigan and being Michigan specific, um, you know, it's really important to talk to people about some of the nuances, like, how how is it focused? Um, a lawyer in Louisiana once told me this story about there was a bar exam question and there was like a very Louisiana specific word. I think it was toboggan or something like that, which means canoe. And it, it would, only people in Louisiana would know that. Right. Kind of like if there was a question on the Michigan bar about a party store. Right. All 40 other 49 other states would think. There's confetti being sold there and things like that. Um, but people appealed it. And, and uh, I guess in Louisiana, it held up that, uh, you know, 
you're you're considered to be a resident that it was within the purview of something you should be held accountable but it sort of reshaped the way you might have understood the question and therefore answered the question so um yeah very like very good what you said like you know you understood the common law aspect of it but you should look at it holistically and see what to attack what are things you should look into that sort of thing um so okay so you graduate, you take the Michigan bar. And then um, did, did you know of your Michigan results by the time you took the New Jersey bar or how did, how did all, what yes. did that timeline so, so I took the, I took the February bar, February, 2011 for Michigan. Um, and then I would gotten the offer to clerk for the judge in New Jersey. I got the um, Michigan bar results um, April 20th of 2011. And then I took the New Jersey bar in July and then I got the results while I was still clerking. So I was still, I was like already moved to Jersey and clerking for the judge. And we got the results late because of some, whatever issue was going on with their bar people. We didn't get those results until the end of November. So that was excruciating. Mm-hmm. So my whole thing was like, look, you, uh, and they told us like, don't worry when you're a clerk, you can retake it in February. Nobody's firing you. But I was like, please, I just do not want to take another bar. So it was very, <laughs> I was very happy when that was all done. Cause I was like, I'm not taking any more. I'm done. That's it. Yeah. So results day, right. I, I had a friend, I don't know if it was a similar situation, but I had a friend who was clerking in New Jersey, um, Southern New Jersey. And, um, a bunch of them had also sat for PA Pennsylvania's came out first and we knew it was going to come out on a Friday. They didn't tell us what, when there was like a pop-up, you know, you're frantically checking the website and like some pop-up comes up and it's like, Oh, it's something different. It's like, yeah, they're going to be announced tomorrow. So he said like that Friday was super intense and like, I guess they would all eat lunch together in this cafeteria and everyone was like silent and like staring at each other. He said it was like they were in basic training, just on pins and needles. Did, do you have a similar story or? Well, so so for Michigan, I had a friend that worked in the court system and texted me and said the results are being mailed out. They should come tomorrow. So with Michigan, it wasn't posted online. It was actually mailed to you. Okay. And so the day that I knew it was coming, I left the house. I went out with a friend and I said, dad, just call me because I can't I can't sit in the house. I was losing my mind. And so my dad called me while I was with my friend and we went to the bar. So it was like we either we either go to the bar and cry or we go to the bar and celebrate um, with Jersey. It was online. And so it's one of those, you're, you're refreshing the page constantly. Mm -hmm. And it it had just gotten to the point where it was just taking so long. Like everybody had the results, but Jersey. And, but what they had done is the, the local bar association had put together a get together kind of anticipating, Oh, they'll come out within the next couple of weeks. Uh, So when they finally came out, then we had like kind of just a get together at a bar in Hoboken and, it was kind of like the whole, like kind of like looking at each other, like, is this, is this, you know, congratulations, is this not? And so it was, but it was, it was nice. And for the people that didn't, and this was one thing that was really great um, for the people that didn't pass one of the judges um, in Hudson County, she actually called them all into her chambers and said, look, I failed the bar the first time. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. 
just, you know, take the time that you need. If you actually need to take extra days off, let me know. Uh, I'll make sure that you're accommodated. And all of them retook it and all of them passed the second time. But I think that that was those little things are so important. And I think that's one of the reasons I never left this area, because I always found that like New Jersey and especially Hudson County was always looking out for its lawyers. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's that's great. It, and you're right. There is that awkwardness, right? You almost feel bad. Um, and you, you hope that those people eventually pass. And, and that's awesome that, that they did. Um, but yeah, I mean, you'd be surprised, like the phenomenal lawyers out there that have all, you know, not passed. I, I'm from California. I didn't obviously take the California bar, but I mean, there's like a illustrious list of people that did not pass the first time. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just, it's gotta be deflating because you know how much effort goes into it. They may not, they're not working any less harder and, you know, um, but it's another life lesson, um, in practice, it's the same, right? You put all this effort into a case and you may not ultimately prevail. So, yeah. um, all right, uh, let's, let's talk about what you do now. Yeah. So I am a partner at Chase and Lamparello. That's a law firm in Secaucus. And I've been practicing there for 10 years. Uh, we have about 50 attorneys and I practice labor and employment litigation. So anything from preparing employee handbooks, anti-harassment training, harassment and discrimination investigations, disciplinary hearings, up to defending employers in harassment and discrimination lawsuits. So they keep me pretty busy here. That's good. Um I got a question for you, random question for you, because this is my theory. Um, like yearly reviews, do you, do you believe that like the employer should take them really seriously? Like when they're <laughs> giving them to employees? So I can give you the lawyer answer of it depends. Okay. Um, so what happens with these annual reviews is they can either be a gift or a curse. You've got to do them every year. If you have decided to let them like go in flux for the last three years, and now you've decided that you want to fire someone and all of a sudden you're doing a, uh, you know, evaluation for the first time in three years, get ready for that lawsuit because that is some type of retaliation. (laughs) We'll find find something that you did wrong. And that's why you decided to target me and give me a negative review. So if you're doing reviews, you got to do them. Um, and if you're not doing them and you've decided, oh, we want to discipline this person, you've got to be really careful and methodical about it because I, I I will I can't tell you how many times my cases are predicated on this is a retaliatory um evaluation and they've never evaluated anybody before. Right. So just be careful with it. So where, where I'm going with this, hear me out on this, right? Okay. There is this umpire in baseball, and he's the worst umpire in baseball. Just Go on the internet, you'll see. The, the whole internet hates him long after I've disliked him, right? And he's the worst umpire in baseball because I know his name, right? If I know your name, if you're behind a mask and I know your name, there, there's something wrong with you, right? So he had the nerve to like sue Major League Baseball like maybe five years back saying, I'm not getting, you know, the, the marquee assignments and it's because you're discriminating against me, Right. And, you know, I had to laugh. I'm like, um, but everyone knows you're the worst. Like I could put together a highlight reel of the things he's done. Not only has he blown calls, he's arrogant about it when he blows the calls. And, but then I heard that like, 
in his pleadings, he said that, you know, he got good, good glowing reviews. Right. And I was like, this is a lesson, right? If an employee is not good, I understand it creates awkwardness, but you need to find a way to, to, to document in there that, you know, there are performance issues. This isn't a model employee because, you know, then the worst ump in baseball is going to sue you for saying that you discriminated against him when the whole world knows that he's the worst ump in baseball. So, yeah, I think you've described a lot of my cases too, because by the time things get to me, the supervisors are telling me, well, this person's been really like not that great at their job for the past 20 years. Well, have you ever disciplined them? No. Well, let me see their evaluations. They don't have any, or if they have them, they have like one or two that are all glowing. Well, who wrote this? Well, we didn't (laughs) want to make this person feel bad. Well, now you have a half a million dollar lawsuit. So here we go. You know, I I feel bad for you. (laughs) Here we are. Yeah, it's hard to tell people that they're not performing up to a certain standard, but I think that comes down to, you know, actual supervisors being taught how to be supervisors. I think what happens is we promote people and then we never like give them any leadership training. So they have no idea how to write evaluations, no idea how to like evaluate people because you could just write below like not satisfactory, but no, have no idea how to follow that up. Like you have to give actual examples on this date. They failed to do this on this date, but sometimes they're afraid because they're like, Oh, this person's going to hit me with the discrimination lawsuit. But it's like, if you're specific about what your feedback is, then that's less likely to happen. And just remember anybody with $200 can file a lawsuit. That's always something that can happen. But it's less likely to happen if you document things. Right. And it's, it's hard work, right? Because we're all thinking, oh, I'm going to get to that. And then we never get to it. And then five, 10 years have gone by and you haven't gotten to anything. Yeah. So, yeah. How has the whole, you know, work from home, how has that sort of changed the dynamic in, in the employee-employer relations? <laughs> the interesting thing is electronic communications can be a very um can be a can be a cesspool of harassment and discrimination. So the way we email each other, the way that we um get on social media with each other um can has really changed. People have gotten a little bit more comfortable in the way that they communicate and not just maybe online, but maybe uh not just written, but also with Zoom and all these things. So uh, what I see sometimes is People are ha- were shut in for a long period of time and n- didn't necessarily have the frustration tolerance that they once had. And so they were having more like they're blowing up more and they're losing their temper more than if they were seeing each other every day and learning how to deal with frustration and disappointment and irritation and all the things that come with just being in a workplace with other humans. And so I've seen, unfortunately, like, social media, just breakdowns of communication to where people are fighting about work stuff on Facebook or fighting about work stuff on Twitter. And it's like, Mm. how did we get here? You know, this wouldn't have happened if we were in person every day, but now everything is so heightened and everybody feels so offended or more offended than normal. So that's one of the things that I've seen from my end is just a lot of breakdown in communication that probably wouldn't happen if we were seeing each other face-to-face more often. Yeah, that's that's a good point. That's a very good point. Um, do you do you get the feeling that performance has improved or gotten worse due to this dynamic? It's really tough to say that because there's so many different industries. So 
for some industries, working at home has made things a lot more streamlined and a lot more uh, productive. For other industries, people have unfortunately taken advantage of the additional free time that working from home gives them. So it's like you may, if somebody has like, you know, someone that they need to complete a task and they call them and they're like, oh, I'm getting my nails done. <laughs> you know? Right. Like I, was like, I was, you know, this is part of my lunch break. I mean, but it's like, if they're, it's different from if they're in their office and they're going to grab a bite and they're going to come back to their desk, whereas like, they're just completely unavailable. Um, you know, and I, unfortunately, I think a lot of, a lot of workers have been their worst, their own worst enemies when it comes to this, the work from home. Cause a lot of times when they're like touting it, they're saying all the things that their supervisors really don't care. They're like, Hey, I get to go to the bank and walk my dog and spend more time with my kids. And I get to do all these things. And I'm supervisors do not want to hear that. They don't want to hear that. You got to spend more time with these things that you enjoy doing. They're not hearing I'm more productive and I'm making my boss more money. So it's like when they're touting the, the, uh, the, the great things about work from home, they've got to remember that their audience is ultimately the supervisors that's making these like decisions about whether or not they want them to come back. Yep. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, let's talk about something big that you did recently. I mean, you've done a lot of big things, but let's talk about that Supreme court case that you are in. Yeah. So it wasn't the sexiest of, of issues. Um, it was actually, it was about a payroll tax in one of our clients. So we represent the city of Newark and there was a payroll tax and there was a question of whether or not it violated the dormant commerce clause. So all these things that I thought I would never have to look at ever again after law school, I learned more about that commerce clause than I ever thought I would. I mean, it was a very interesting, it was interesting to me, right? And writing Supreme Court briefs is at like a higher level than any way I'd ever written before, later nights than I'd ever worked before. And just to get up there and argue it and actually know what I was talking about before I forgot all of it, um, was, it was, it was so cool. And it was my first argument in person since COVID. So I haven't, I have all my arguments have been on zoom. And so it was in person in Trenton in front of the justices. And it was a really, really cool experience. And I want to do it again. Hopefully I'll have another controversial issue. That's not the commerce clause <laughs> that I can argue at some point. So yeah. one, one thing that I, I enjoyed that a lot of people in your position wouldn't have done, I think you, you chronicled your inner feelings throughout the course of that argument. Um, and didn't you mention you even blacked out at one point, like <laughs> meaning, meaning like you were, I guess you were on autopilot and, and going through the argument, but don't recall it, that sort of thing. Yeah. And I think that goes back to the whole, you know, what they taught us in law school, what Professor Brett's taught me. It was like, remember your roadmap, you know, the first, you know, few sentences you're going to say, that's all you have to memorize and everything else after that, you kind of can look down, but it was just like, I remember getting up there and okay, let me just get my roadmap out. And then after that, I didn't really remember much. And then it was like, always pay attention to the, cause it's like, you're looking at all the people. So you're looking from like left to right and looking at everybody's facial expressions. Do they look bored? Are they done with me? Are they annoyed? Um, read the room. And so, you know, when the chief justice said, you know, anything else, that's my signal to sit down. So it was like, I sat down and I'm like, I have, I don't remember anything that I said. I, I remember nothing. And then I get, you know, you get back to your car and you have all these text messages. You did a great job because it was streaming 
on the website. And I was like, oh, I guess but people at my job approved of it. And a couple of my friends from some high school friends watched it and they thought it was a good job. So I'm like, okay, I guess. And I went back and I watched it and I was like, whoa, I said that. That's great. (laughs) (laughs) How long was that oral argument? So all together with everybody arguing, it was over two hours. I only talked maybe 15 minutes because um, it was mainly this, you know, the state of New Jersey and then Jersey city and then Newark kind of had a, a smaller part in the, in the case. But, you know, so I think the I think the state talked for maybe an hour and I think Jersey City talked for maybe 45 minutes. And then I kind of came in and they kind of made it clear before I got up. They're like, "Okay, don't repeat everybody else's, uh, you know, arguments. And so it's just like, yeah, we're not wasting anybody's time. We're just up here to say the words that I have to get out. And then because I had the short version and the long version. And I was like, okay, we're doing the short version. And then, you know, they asked one question. I was very happy with my one question and that was it. And it was a really, really great experience. That's awesome. Speaking of awesome, let's talk about something else. So you made partner within the last couple of years, correct? Yeah. Okay. So tell me a little bit about this and, you know, I could be wrong, but my thoughts are that people that know people that aren't lawyers, people that are on the outside, they would say that this is the ultimate goal, right? Like the ultimate goal is to make judge, to become a judge or to make partner, right? Um, I don't know if those that was your ultimate goal and like you reached the mountaintop and now there's more to, to conquer, but just talk about that journey a little bit. Yeah. So every firm is different. And I think everybody regardless of where you are, whether it's in a firm of, you know, a thousand people, a firm of two people, a firm, you know, with here, we're like in 50. So it's kind of like in the middle is to get clear as to what the partnership track is and what that means and how long the people who are partner waited before they made partners. So it's like whenever they have partnership announcements, okay, how many years have they been here? What's the type of work that they do? What is, what are your requirements? You know, we know our billable requirements, but a lot of people don't know what their revenue requirements are because you could bill till the cows come home. But if you're not bringing in the revenue, if you're if your clients aren't paying the bills, then those billable hours don't mean much. Um, and so just understanding what your requirements are year over year and act- actually asking for feedback. Lawyers are notoriously terrible at giving feedback. Your feedback is usually getting more work. Uh, but being more specific about what do I need to do? And sometimes some of the people don't know. They're just like, I just made partner one day. And so, okay, well, I've been here, you know, whatever amount of years. And I guess this is the next step. So for me, I was there for eight years before making partner. And I was, I would say the first few years, you're just kind of coasting and just, you know, in shock the whole time. You're like, oh, they still haven't fired me. So I must be doing something right. But then you get more intentional as the years go by and you start having more autonomy with the clients and you're starting to like build your own book because there is no instruction manual as to how to build a book of business. It's one of those things that you just kind of have to figure out, which is something that you can get really resentful about. And you got to be really careful and make sure you're keeping your mindset like level Because the way that the person down the hall is building a book is going to be different from the way that you're building a book, depending on what the practice area is. And really, it comes down to meeting people, telling them that you're a lawyer and just making offers to help them. That's what it always comes down to. But being very clear about the type of law that you're doing and want to do. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of how I got here. 
When you reached that uh, accomplishment, was it everything you thought it would be or how would you explain? Yeah, it was, it was, first of all, it kind of affirms the work that you've done up to that point, because being a lawyer is a lot of work and a lot of hours and a lot of time. So when you're recognized by your firm and it's like, okay, you're a leader, that's a great thing. I would say that when you become a leader though, like there's not going to be like a leadership training that'll teach you, this is how you become a partner. It's kind of like, you've got to figure it out. And that can be kind of disillusion. Like, oh, what am I supposed to do? Oh, I'm in charge of people. People come to me and ask me for advice. I'm supposed to like review things. It, it really requires you to add that skill set and figure it out as you go. And I, I see a lot of partners that kind of flounder. And I did, you know, in, oh, I don't have enough help. And, you know, I gave this person an assignment and it takes too long to explain things to people. And I just rather do it myself. And there is a skill that comes with having the patience to explain things to associates, putting the time aside to actually review their work and to sit down with them and give them feedback and to watch them get better over time. Because if they were as good as you, they'd also be a partner. So it's like, it's, they're not going to be at the same level. And it's our responsibility as partners to bring them along, but we have to make time for it. Even when we tell ourselves we don't have time, because at some point someone had time for us. So we have to kind of bring that up. So there's a lot of things that I just didn't know that went into it. It was, it's not, a lot of people have this idea like, oh, you're just going to be a partner and then everybody's going to do your work. And then you just go to play golf all day. No, it's not like that at all. It's a lot more work because now you're supervising and you're responsible for someone else. And the, you know, the people that are starting are not starting as rock stars. They're starting as first year associates. They don't right. know what you know. So it, it just it takes a lot of patience, time management, and the desire to make, you know, help people be as good as you are. Yeah. yeah I'm reminded of that meme. Maybe they should be make a partner version of it, right? We're like, <laughs> What what people think, what my friends think I do, what my family thinks I do, what I actually do, that that sort of thing. And you yeah. have, yeah, you'd have someone on a golf course schmoozing. Um, <laughs> you'd have, you know, another one with like all kinds of money, you know, that you're 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 sitting in, and then it's what you described, you know, which is a lot more a uh, lot more work than those first two pictures on the meet. Yeah, yeah. It requires a lot of patience. And I think a lot of people don't have it. And I've heard, you know, people say, oh, I just wish they would understand. And it's like, well, how do you think that you understood? Somebody sat down with you, but some people didn't have that. And there's some resentment and they think, well, it, it, it didn't happen for me. So I shouldn't do it for someone else. And that's a really dangerous path to go down because then you're just not going to have help, but it's really because of you, not because of the other person. Right. Okay, so for this portion of the program, I'd like you to, the time is yours. Um, feel free to promote anything that you want, you know, your, your firm, your uh, uh, initiative you're working on, uh, you know, companies you have, a cause, et cetera. Yeah, so I am also a certified life coach and I have, I created that when I burned out of four years in a practice, I burned out. I ended up in the ER with severe vertigo. And the only thing that they could find that actually caused it was severe stress. And after that, I started Googling and trying to figure out, okay, how do I deal with my stress? And at first, all the results were like, leave, get out of law, save yourself. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't want that. And so at the time I found mindfulness, which was a really great help. 
but there was something missing. And so finally I kind of found mindset work, thought work and life coaching. And that's what really changed everything for me, helped me to manage my mind. And if you think about it, you know, four years in, in order to make partner, you're going to have to do more work. So how do I do more work, but not be stressed out? And that's really what the coaching helped with me. So I was, I became certified in the middle of the pandemic. So 2021, I became certified and I specifically help women make partner without burning out. So it's kind of an idea. I burned out, so you don't have to. Um, and so I've been, I work with clients one-on-one. My website is the spirituallitigator.com. And as of now, I usually do a mindful video every Monday on my Instagram. And it's also on my LinkedIn. And uh, I'm on Instagram, Spiritual Litigator, Facebook, Spiritual Litigator, and you can just search my name on LinkedIn. And so that's kind of something I'm very, very passionate about because I think every, every single person experiences stress as a lawyer. But when you add different layers, like being a woman or being a woman of color, like just experience stress in a very different way for various different reasons. And so that's not to say that one person's stress is more quote unquote valuable than another's. It's just to say these different experiences are based on intersectionality. And I try to break that down and work with people from where they are. So that's my, that's my pitch. So check me out. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. Um, I'm a huge fan of you doing this. And one of the reasons why I wanted you as my first guest is, you know, you weren't born on third base and think, thought you hit a triple, right? You know, statistically there's, there's numbers against you. And then you add to that, that, um, you know, you didn't go to Harvard law, you, you, your parents weren't in this field or you didn't have a firm that you could go to. You had to leave your home state behind and, and come somewhere brand new, um, and, and you did it all yourself with with the help of others. But what I, you, you know what I mean? No, no handouts that other people might have had. And uh, you've done it. You've thrived. You've reached a goal that many people have in mind. Um, you're honest about all the obstacles that are in the way. And you know, I, if I don't want Joe Buck coaching me on how to get into the broadcast booth, right? I, I want the person that did it, you know, through grit and and got there without their daddy's name. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, my wife heard you on a CLE the other day. Uh, she was fortunate enough to attend and she was loving it. She was like, yeah, she speaks the truth. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, no. And and um, to add to, to your services uh, or to add, you know, piggyback of what you're saying, like people often maybe confide in their spouse um, when they're stressed out about things and that person can only, you know, they may only have one line of advice or, or one way to attack it. And that advice can only go so far. It's, it's good to go to somebody else who can provide a different perspective, that can provide a different angle that maybe can be tougher with, with the person to get them where they need to be. So, yeah, for those of you looking for, for it, I highly endorse uh, Shane's life coaching um, program. Thank you. Um, all right. So for the next piece, um, we're going to do something here. Have you seen the movie uh, Philadelphia with Denzel Washington? So yeah. my favorite line, arguably in cinema, uh, is explain it to me like I'm a four-year-old, right? <laughs> so are there any like legal concepts or um, myths that you wish to dispel that the audience can learn something today? And I'll give this disclaimer. It does not constitute legal advice. This is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Feel free to add any sort of disclaimer on top of this. The one thing that I thought of was 
your lawyer friends and family members are not your free letter writers. You know, people think <laughs> people think every problem can be solved with a strongly worded letter. Um, and especially in employment, I'll have people call me. I just, I just need a letter, you know, to send this letter. And it's like, if your employers were so predictable that you could just send them a letter and fix things, then you wouldn't need that letter in the first place, right? They're unpredictable and writing a letter is only the beginning and it's not free. (laughs) So to dispel myths, we as lawyers don't just sit around writing strongly worded letters and just like making it rain. We actually have to review a lot of things and contracts and handbooks and we send letters and get told to kick rocks. And then we have to make decisions about, do we file a lawsuit? And then we have to do depositions and investigations and it's a lot of work. So just remember uh, your lawyer friends and family members are not free letter writers. Uh, Pay us. Yeah, they, it sounds like they treat you um, like you're the buff friend, and uh, you know they 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 treat you as their muscle at time, right? Um, <laughs> well, and Mark, this is why I don't do I don't do work for friends or family, and I've had I've had many a friend and family call, and I'm like, and I will give you a referral. It's it's a boundary that I set at the very beginning of the whole process that I. It's a boundary I said at the beginning of the process that I usually keep. And um, I find that it just makes life a lot easier. Yeah, I could I could definitely see that. You know, you want to keep your relationships and your professional life separate. All right. Um, well, Shane, it's it's been great. I appreciate you taking time on this Monday morning to uh, talk shop with me. Um, you know, thank you. Thank you for joining All right. Thank you so much for having me. It was great talking with you. All right. To all my listeners, stay solid. And Piano Man, take us out. Need a lawyer? Are you having financial, criminal, or family challenges? Call or text the Mark Kachi Law Firm, 215-439-7899.